please be seated. So, a great privilege this morning to welcome Dr. Paul Jean to our pulpit. Paul is a friend of mine who is a church planter in this area, planted New City Church. He is also an adjunct professor at RTS where he teaches New Testament, and so it's just great to have Paul with us. So, Paul, come on up, come up, come on up and uh, let me pray for you before, before you preach. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for Paul. Thank you for his uh, gifts, and thank you for um, his willingness to, to come and share with us the grace of your gospel today. I thank you, Lord, for our friendship and for uh, the opportunity, Lord, to be in ministry with uh, like-minded friends, like-minded brothers, and I pray that you would just give him uh, great uh, freedom and confidence to speak boldly from your word. We are a people, Lord, this very day in need of words of grace and truth. So bless Paul as he brings these words to us from your perfect word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Paul. Good morning. Um, I, well, that's very uncommon. Usually when I say good morning to my congregation, it's just silent. Uh, <laughs> I thought you might... Um, be entertained by this conversation I had with a friend. He, he's a good friend who has counseled me over the years, and uh, I mentioned to him I'm preaching at McLean Presbyterian Church, and he said, oh, the McLean Presbyterian Church? I thought, yes, and he said, are you nervous? And I said to him, I'm less nervous about preaching at the church than I am about the fact that they have a pretty phenomenal preacher. And he said, what's so good about him? And I couldn't really put my finger on it. I, I said, he has like the X factor. Just can't. <laughs> it's, it's not just his accent. It's just everything about him. So, you know, I was going off. And then um, you would think he would say, well, Paul, you know, rest in your identity in Jesus or something along those lines. And he, he was very quiet. And he said, you sound like you have a man crush on him. <laughs> And then at the end, you should think about that. And then he walked away. So, oh, yeah, okay. But, yeah, but thank you for having me. It's, um, it's great to be here. It's been great to get to know your pastor. And um, today we're doing a series on, um, we're doing a message on contentment. And contentment uh, is in a lot of ways the, or coveting is the evil twin of contentment. So that's why I thought today's passage would be very good. You notice in this passage, Paul begins by saying, in all things, I have learned to be content. I have learned the secret of it. And the magnitude of that statement is understood when we understand that Paul is speaking in the context of being in prison and possibly facing death. Now, you and I, we face, if I can say, and I don't mean to minimize what we go through, but we face far less you know, difficult circumstances. Uh, we face perhaps difficult bosses. Maybe we have difficult work situations. Maybe uh, one of my most nervous situations ever in life was when I had to go give a lecture at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia and preach before uh, my, former, my former professors, Poitras, Gaffin, all these giants, and I just could not say a word of English throughout that entire time. Uh, they wondered, is, oh, is he one of those foreign students? <laughs> I said, no, 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 it's you. But uh, anyway... Um, we face far less situations, and yet Paul, who is about to be in pri- he, who is in prison, he may be facing death. He's able to say, "I have a deep equilibrium of the soul. All is well. All will be well. I'm okay, and things will be okay." And when you listen to his words, 
You hear words. You hear something that we all long for: a deep longing to be content, to be satisfied. And coveting is the evil twin in the sense that it represents, if I can say, the disequilibrium of the soul, the broken balance that we feel on a regular basis. If I could provide a definition for coveting, it's when we feel like we need, we want something, we need it so much that if we don't have it, our lives are meaningless. See, coveting isn't simply wanting something. In the English, there isn't really a good translation for the Hebrew or or the Greek where people will ask, "Well, is it wrong to want something? Is it really wrong to really want something?" And the answer is, of course, no. But the Bible says, "Is when you want something so much." That you feel like your your entire existence, your meaning, your identity is wrapped up in that, and if you don't have it, you have nothing. That's what it's getting at. And so today we want to reflect together on on contentment. You might say, what what it means to be content. So three things that I want to reflect with you on today on, as we think about contentment. Number one is this: contentment is something that is independent of circumstances. It does not rely on circumstances. So, so that's the first point I want to reflect with you on. Number two, contentment is a secret. There's something mysterious, transcendent about it. And then finally, contentment is something we find by virtue of union with Jesus Christ. By virtue of union with Jesus Christ. So let me reflect with you on those things. Number one, contentment. This is very counterintuitive for many of us. Uh, it's definitely countercultural. And even for many of us who believe we believe this, don't in fact believe this. Paul says here, "I have learned to be content, irrespective of the circumstances." Paul says again, "If you want to be content, you don't have to look at your circumstances and say, 'If only this were different, then all would be well.'" And the word he uses here for learn is is the, in the Greek it's mantano, and it means not simply I have learned in a cognitive sense. I've gone to school and I've learned it from a professor. But what Paul is getting at here is I have learned from experience. That's the sense of the verb, uh, experience that I can be content irrespective of the circumstances. And then he goes on to say I've learned what it means to abound. I've learned what it means to have little. I've been brought up and down. And what Paul is getting at here is that in life there are two extreme circumstances. The first is when we have our dreams dashed, our dreams are broken. Uh, we minister at my church to many older singles, who uh, I don't want to name an age because you might assess yourself accordingly. So who feel older, <laughs> and they feel their dreams have been dashed because they're still single, and all they've ever wanted was to find that mythical creature. The one, and um, have a family, and uh, they feel like their dreams have been dashed. Or perhaps for some of you who are parents, you had um, dreamed, you had hoped that your child would take over the family business, would follow in your footsteps, uh, perhaps at your law firm or whatever it might be, and your child has decided to become perhaps an artist or a musician. You feel like your dreams have been dashed or something. So there's that. There's that end where we feel like our dreams have been dashed, and then there's the other end where your dreams have been realized. Um, where everything you wanted has come true. Now, Paul is very insightful here because he basically says the problem, the reason why most of us never understand that contentment isn't the product of circumstances is because we're in between. Our dreams haven't been dashed yet. Our dreams haven't been dashed yet, but they haven't been realized. And so, even for those of us who are perhaps a little older, we still subtly believe if only. I achieve this final milestone, all will be well. 
See, that's the problem that many of us face. Again, our dreams haven't been dashed yet, but our dreams haven't been realized. And so secretly, perhaps unconsciously, we still believe that if we just achieve this next step, this next milestone, then all would be well. If you live long enough, however, if you just look at current events, if you speak with people, you're, this contentment not only comes when your dreams have been dashed, but I would almost suggest this, content, this contentment comes when your dreams have been fully realized. And the thing is, when you've been there and your dreams have been realized and you feel this contentment, that's the saddest part, that's the saddest point you can be. It was uh, five years ago, uh, this was one of my more memorable uh, pastoral situations, a, a member called. It was at 10 at night. And not that that was late, but he called by saying, Pastor, let's have dinner together. And I said, 10? Well, we're, watch, we're trying to watch our figure here. Come on, let's be reasonable. Uh, but anyway, I met him at the restaurant. And as soon as I walked in, I could tell he was intoxicated. just smelled like alcohol. And um, he's like, it's so good to see you, Pastor. And I thought, oh my, this is going to be one of those nights. And um, for about two hours, he was just talking about how things were going so well in his business. All was well. And then finally, by midnight, we got thrown out of the restaurant. He, uh, we're, we're going home. And I asked him, what's wrong? What's wrong? I mean, when you were 30, you made more money than most people make in 10 lifetimes. Your, your net value is so high. You have literally achieved every dream you have ever wanted. And he said something I'll never forget. He goes, I know. I know. And he says, it's so lonely when you're at the top. And worst of all, when you're up there, you realize it's not everything that you thought it would be. He has, he has everything in a lot of ways. And he says, but it's so lonely when you're actually up there. You see, you don't have to reach that point. I mean, even those of you who are married and sometimes uh, singles come to you and they say, isn't it like wonderful to be married? Now, depending on if your spouse is next to you, you're like, yes. And then <laughs> your spouse you're like, but there are moments. There are moments. Because for those of us who are married, is hey, you know, I have a great marriage, but I would say honestly, it, it hasn't brought about this complete sense of fulfillment that all the Disney movies portray, happily ever after. No, I mean, it's not always happily ever after. You see, that's what Paul is getting at. He's saying when you finally achieve, you go through this process of perhaps your dreams haven't been dashed, but you're, you want your dreams to realize, and when you finally get there, you realize, hmm, that isn't quite it. And see, this is why Paul is providing for us this tremendous insight. And friends, I want you to just really consider it. He's saying our contentment does not rely on our circumstances. And if I were to ask you, do you believe it? You might say, amen. But then I would say, okay, let's not use church language. Do you really believe it? I think most of us would be tempted to say, hmm, I don't know. Because I still find myself at least silently saying, if only, you know, my spouse were understanding. Or if only my spouse didn't demand to be understood. If only I had this job. If only I had kids who didn't actually need parents, you know, whatever it may be, you know. We, we have these, we have all these dreams, or these, you know, these desires we have. And see, that's what Paul is saying. See, we still believe that contentment is a function of our circumstances. He provides this tremendous insight. He says, it's not. It's not. I just want to just draw out one quick application before we move on. There are, st- there are many of us 
this is two ways I've noticed people have generally responded to,、um, when they go through this process of having their dreams realized, and they realize their dreams haven't been realized. Then they they find a new dream. Do you know? Do you know what I'm saying? Like they find a new dream. And so, think about this. Maybe some of you are dissatisfied because you're at a job and that was your ideal job, and you're like, hmm, not not as ideal as I thought. All this time I thought that this was it. And so you're thinking about switching jobs, or perhaps more poignantly, more brokenly. You know, many of us feel that in our relationships. I have counseled so many married couples over the years, and. This is, by the way, something we have to really take out of the way our children think about marriage. You know,、um, many times when I、uh, counsel married couples, this is what one person will say: "I always wonder if I actually married the right person." And you know, sometimes I wonder. I just think that the right person is actually out there, but I'm stuck in this marriage. You see, that's what Paul is getting at here, where we still are entertaining this notion. That if just the circumstances were different, if just this were different, then all would be well. And I would argue that many people, especially in this DC area, are still like that. They believe that if maybe I had a different job, maybe if I had a different family, maybe if I had a different church, maybe whatever it may be, then all would be well. And Paul's like, "Don't kid yourself. Contentment is independent of circumstances." The other thing I want to just off,、um, offer you for your consideration is this. And this happens, by the way, mostly with people who are perhaps older or more mature. You've tried different things. You're like, okay, work does not satisfy me the way I thought it would. Let me pick up a new hobby. Maybe it's golf. Maybe it's whatever it may be. And then after a while, you begin to realize that nothing quite satisfies you, and you become hardened. Become hardened. Your heart becomes hard because it never wants to be disappointed again. You, in a lot of ways, you cut off your nose so that you don't have to smell anything again. You see. Many of us have become hardened, and I would suggest that to you is because of the fact that you are holding on to this notion that my contentment is ultimately dependent on my circumstances. Is that you? Well, I would offer to you this encouragement today. What Paul says is, contentment is possible. It is possible, but it does begin by your letting go of this notion that we hold on to so tightly that somehow my circumstances will dictate whether or not I can be content. Paul says that's not. So that's number one. Circum- contentment does not depend on our circumstances. Number two, Paul says here, "I have learned the secret of being content." Now, this point, I, I was literally、um, contemplating all week, and I reread some books、um, just to get a better grasp on this. But the way the dictionary, most dictionaries define secret is something that's hidden, something that's obvious. And so that's one aspect that we want to highlight here: the secret of contentment. It's not obvious; it's hidden. And at the same time, has anyone ever said to you, "Hey, do you want to know the secret?" There's something incredibly attractive about se- secrets. And so it's not something that's simply hidden; it's something that we all long for. When Paul says here, "I have learned the secret of contentment," he's getting at this: that contentment is this thing that continues to elude us; it continually escapes us, but it's something that we want. And I, I would say there's no band that has better captured this than, if I may,、um, just look at the. I always forget the lines. It's、uh, this band; they did it so well. U2, the, the band that never gets old.、Uh, from the song that most of you know, you can't help but hear Bono sing it. I won't attempt it because it'll just wreck the song for you. So let me just read it.、Um, the words from "I still haven't found what I'm looking for." I have climbed highest mountain. I have run through the fields. 
only to be with you and only to be with you. I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city's walls, these city walls only to be with you. But this chorus, which resonates with every person, irrespective of what you believe, he says, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. See, he is getting at what poets, philosophers, every person throughout history has felt, that contentment is this thing that continues to elude us. It escapes us, but it's something that we want so much. And you know this because in life, we have hints of what I call this imperishable bliss. All of us, we have moments of what we consider this is as close to ecstasy as we can get. Those of you who are, are at Harvest, you'll know um, the story that I shared. But let me illustrate this. I have a three-year-old son. His name is Christian. And we are trying to homeschool him. We'll see how well that goes. But uh, every day we try to teach him about ten new words. And we get about three done. So, you know. You aim high, you accept low, and uh, that's the key to parenting. And so, um, so you know, it, it, it is pretty cute, because whenever he sees a puppy, he'll say a question like, is the puppy gregarious? And so, yes, good job, that's good use of vocabulary. But um, I'll tell you this one story, like, one of his favorite words is nefarious, which means wicked, evil, terrible. And um, every morning, well, for a while, and this illustrates the point, uh, this is what it sounds like at my house. Let me see if I can do it with this, uh, I think. And then, so what happens is my son jumps out of his bed, and he starts to run to our, to our room. And he jumps onto our bed. He doesn't quite have hops, so he falls back down. And then he climbs, he climbs back up. He, he goes, he makes his way to the center between me and my wife. It's like a little snake coming out. And then he faces me. He, he blows his morning breath. And he says, my breath is nefarious. <laughs> and I said, it is wicked beyond imagination. <laughs> and, um, but then what happens is he hugs and he says, daddy, do you love me? I'm like, I love you, but not your nefarious breath. <laughs> and we hug. And you see, that moment is so precious as... As, 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 even though it's not, it's so precious because those are the moments that all of us have in life that we wish could last forever. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Like, we all have had per- what we thought were like almost perfect moments, right? But what every philosopher, poet, writer, thinker has said is, you see, those moments are those moments of perishable bliss that we wish would last throughout eternity. And so what happens now is my son wakes up he doesn't run to our room. He said he just walks over. He knocks on my head. He says, can I see your iPhone? <laughs> so, you know, and I said, oh, the perishable bliss is gone. But um, listen to how C.S. Lewis said it. Just let me read someone at length. But C.S. Lewis, in his last chapter, in Problem of Pain, he writes about heaven. And he says this at length. And let me read it slowly because it's so deep with meaning. But he gets at this fact that all of us have had moments of bliss that have stirred, that have aroused this longing for eternal bliss. He says, you have never had it. All the things that have ever deeply possessed your soul have been but hints of it, tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled, echoes that died away just as they caught your ear. 
But if it should really become manifest, if there ever came an echo that did not die away but swelled into the sound itself, you would know it. Beyond all possibility of doubt, you would say, here at last is the thing I was made for. Or he says a little later on, very simply, you have only experienced the want of it. The thing itself has never actually been embodied in any thought or image or or emotion. See, he puts it so well. He's saying that all of us, we've had these moments of what we considered perfect bliss, but we know that that perfect bliss cannot last. And yet that perfect bliss, that perishable um, perfect bliss, was meant to arouse a longing for eternal bliss when we could just capture those moments forever. So that's why Paul, in writing that I have learned the secret of being contentment, couldn't have used the better descriptor. Contentment is a secret. It's something that's not so obvious. It's not so obvious. It's never the thing that we identify it with. And it's so elusive. And at the same time, it's what we long for. Two very important applications very quickly. First is this. We don't know what we really want. When I was growing up, my mom's favorite movie was Sound of Music. And you know how it goes. The hills are love, the sound of music, la, 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 la. And, then, and it goes, climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow, till you find your dream. And so in our culture, we're taught, follow your dream. And what we mean by that is, find that which will which will bring about every, which will bring about perfect satisfaction. Find that thing which will bring about eternal bliss. And Paul is saying in this passage, he's saying, it's not that simple. See, contentment is a secret. And much of life is recognizing, when you become mature, you begin to realize that, hmm, contentment can only be aroused by the thing that I think will bring me contentment, but that very thing cannot bring me contentment. See, that's when maturity comes. And that's when you stop longing for things too much. That's when you stop wishing for things too much. That's when you stop thinking, I must have this job. If I have this perfect relationship, if I have this, then all will be well. See, when you, when you actually become a and you understand what the Bible teaches on contentment, you stop following every rainbow. You stop feeling you have to climb every tree. You stop asking these questions like, I have to know what I'm going to do with my life. Because Paul and a lot of us is saying, don't worry. Because even if you found that thing, that couldn't bring you contentment. In a lot of ways, I think this has so many, so much practical applications. It's not too important to ask people, do you know what you want to do with your life? Do you know what your dream is? Because the reality is we can say, no, I don't. But even if I did, that wouldn't bring me contentment. There's so much freedom when we begin to understand what the Bible teaches about contentment. But secondly, I think when you begin to understand contentment, you begin to understand why you are so angry with the things that you thought would bring you um, contentment. Have you ever thought about why you get so angry with your kids, your spouse, at your perfect job? You know, like, think about the, the contradiction there. You know, kids, the thing that most people want, or, you know, marriage. Why, do, why are you so angry with them? Why are you so angry with them? Why are you so angry with that perfect job? Because you're disappointed by the fact that it did not bring you what you thought it would. See? That's, that's what happens when we begin to understand contentment. We begin to understand why we are so angry with the world, why we are so angry with our kids, why we're so angry with our spouse, because we had looked to these, to these things to bring about the kind of fulfillment 
that ultimately only God can bring. Can I invite you to consider that? I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with your kids or your spouse, your job situation. I'm not saying that. But so much of our frustration, disappointment, sadness, depression, anger in life is born out of the fact that you look at something and you have thought this is the thing that would bring about satisfaction and it hasn't. And as a result, we become angry. We become sad. We become disappointed. See, when you understand the Bible's teaching on contentment, you begin to experience tremendous freedom in life. Freedom from looking to people, looking to circumstances to fulfill that longing that ultimately only God can, can achieve. Which brings us to our last point. Contentment is found by virtue of union with Christ. Now we, we have to tread very carefully because we're going to talk about a verse that is very near and dear to many people. Uh, verse 13. All things I can do through Christ who gives me strength. Now, as a quick aside, um, many people have taken this verse out of context to mean that literally I can achieve all things through Christ who gives me strength. Uh, I remember, for instance, uh, you know, I told Pastor James I couldn't preach behind the pulpit because on a normal day, I'm 5'5". Five, five. On a good day, 5'6". <laughs> Bad day, 5'4". And today's okay day so far, so it's 5'4". And you might not be able to see me, but I was, you know, um, I was actually this height when I was in eighth grade, so I was pretty sure I would become the first Asian in the NBA. And then um, <laughs> what happened was, um, I think Jeremy even beat me, bless his heart. <laughs> so, but um, what happened was in high school, everyone began to go through their growth spurts. Mine didn't happen. But I was still determined to be the first NBA that would win the dunking contest. And my dad kept saying to me, why are you pursuing this dream? And I said, scripture tells us. All things are possible through Christ who gives me strength. <laughs> and he says, that may happen when you are glorified, but not in this lifetime. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, Dad. Uh, and you see, a lot of us, we take chapter 4, verse 13 as a reference to all things I can, I can accomplish through Christ who gives me strength. That's not quite what uh, verse 13 is getting at. In the context, all things is referring to the ups and downs in life. When we have our dreams dashed, when we have our dreams realized, it doesn't matter because in all situations, I have a deep equilibrium. All is well because of my union with Jesus Christ. That's what verse 13 is saying. And that is the secret that Paul has learned. We've all, we've all had hints of it. I mean, I'm sure at some point in life you have heard or you have thought or you have said to someone, as long as I have you, you know, all is well. All will be well. But what Paul is saying, when we have Christ, all will be well. And the language here, when you look at the Greek, is he's not simply saying Christ uh, enables me to do all things. He says, all things are, I am able. I am able to endure in Christ. He's saying, by virtue of my union with Jesus Christ. See, Philippians 4.13 is simply another way of saying uh, Romans, the last uh, few verses in Romans 8, where it says, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. Paul's contentment comes from this. See, Jesus came. He lived that life that you and I could never live. He died in our place. He was raised to life. And those who trust in him, those who are found in him, God now is forever for us. His wrath has changed to favor. 
And Paul is saying, when you begin to understand that irrespective of the circumstances or in every circumstances, God is for you because of Jesus. When you believe and when you embrace that gospel, only then do you begin to experience contentment because you know God, the only eyes that really ever matter, he is for you in Jesus Christ. See, that is the gospel. And he's saying, that's when I have learned contentment. Friends, you know, have you, um, have you heard the gospel or have you, heard, have you embraced the gospel? Do you really believe that no matter what happens, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus? That is the good news. And that's why Paul is able to say, all things I am able to endure, all things, it will always be well because of my union with Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying. If you want contentment, you have to ultimately know Christ. Two very quick applications and we'll close. The Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, is the bookend to the First Commandment, or the Ten Commandments. First Commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. Coveting is simply another way of saying, you shall have no other gods before me. Because in all of our lives, there is something that we are desiring more than God. And that's what coveting is. And so if you want to become content, you first need to ask this question of digging down and asking, what has functional control over my life? Why am I sad? Why am I broken? Why am I depressed? When you dig down deep inside, you have to ask, what has become my master apart from Jesus Christ? You see, um, one last anecdote about my son. Um, he, he is um, he's lazy. <laughs> Just Maybe some parents can identify with that. And... Uh, you know, he doesn't like walking, so he always says, can you hit me on your shoulders? And I said, no. And then he says, can you show me grace? And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> you need to become a man. That's what you need. And, um, and so yesterday, I refused to hold him. And so he threw a tantrum, and later on, I was disciplining him. And I asked him, why must I discipline you right now? And he said, because I threw a tantrum. I said, that's insufficient. Tell me what was ruling your heart. You know, he's three, so he's saying, Jesus rules my heart. I'm like, obviously not. (laughs) Let's try this a second time. You know, and what he does is he has a cache of phrases that he'll use. And finally, he said said the right one. He said, it's not just because you um, were throwing a tantrum, but he said, this is why. I forgot it's not all about me. I said, that's good. That's finally good. And he didn't understand any of it, but, you know, you just have to ingrain it at this stage. And you see, what we need to do is that if we want contentment, we have to see what we are coveting. And if we want to see what we are coveting, we have to go back to the first commandment and ask, what has become my master on the deepest level, on the deepest, most profound level? It's not simply that your dreams have been dashed. It's because you have longed for something more than God. And let me tell you what's so amazing. When you really find that thing that has controlled you, this is one of the most glorious parts of the gospel. You begin to understand why the Bible uses the term adulterer to describe the saints. That's what we are. We are constantly loving, pursuing other things more than we love God. And in that context, when you begin to see that you have loved something more than God, the gospel becomes sweet to you. Because you're like, wow, God will love someone who does not love him. And we repent, and then what happens is we begin to find freedom in the gospel. Do you want to be free from coveting? Go back to the first commandment. Ask what has functional control over your life. 
And then second thing is this. Enjoy things for what they are. See, now, see, the message on contentment and coveting is not saying, therefore, you should want nothing, you should desire nothing. But let me ask you just a rhetorical question. How many of you have ever gone to McDonald's and you've been disappointed? No, McDonald's is consistent. And um, let me tell you why you never get disappointed when you go to uh, McDonald's, except when the fries are stale, okay? That's the only exception. But you go to McDonald's, you get a hamburger, and you're never disappointed. Do you know why? Because all you have expected is a hamburger. But if you went to McDonald's expecting a steak from Ruth Chris, you will inevitably be disappointed. The same is true for our lives. We can enjoy relationships. We can desire uh, good marriages. We can desire good jobs. And we can enjoy these things. But you see, the irony is that the gospel is the only thing that enables us to enjoy these things because it, ena- it enables us to see these things for what they are. When you find contentment in Jesus, the irony is then you begin to find true enjoyment in all other things. See, that, that's what's great about it. You cease to be o- overly disappointed. Instead, you can enjoy things. You can enjoy people for what they are. You know, my, my church client, um, New City, I love my church. The, the men have been uh, so supportive, and um, it's just been such a blessing. But in a lot of ways, the reason why church has been such a blessing to me is because I haven't looked to New City as my ultimate source of satisfaction, contentment, or anything of that sort. Instead, when you find the gospel, when Jesus becomes your contentment, what happens is, you, again, you are free to enjoy all things for what they are. So when I speak about my church, I could say all the great things. I could speak of all our warts. That's okay, too, because ultimately the Bible tells us that our contentment comes in Jesus. And that, again, frees us to enjoy all other people, all other things under that gracious umbrella. Um, Let's conclude in this way. You know, you may be sitting there, and you may be thinking, well, contentment is something that only super Christians can achieve, you know, those who are really spiritually mature. But God gives it gives us the commandment, you shall not covet. And what is assumed is that not coveting or being contentment is a possibility that is available for all of us, not just these supposed super-Christians. And the gospel tells us that contentment is possible in and because of Jesus Christ. Let's go to him now in prayer. Let's pray. Almighty God, what we are What every person is looking for uh, in this life, the irony is it cannot be found in this life. That deep equilibrium, that sense that all is well, all will be well, whether I'm facing imprisonment, whether I'm facing rebellious children, whether I'm facing dreams being broken or dreams being realized, We thank you that we can say with the Apostle, we have learned the secret of being content. All things we are able to endure by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ, our righteousness, the very one through whom we have our adoption. And so we pray that we continue to grow in the gospel, grow in finding contentment in Jesus, so that in turn we can be free from every covetous desire and that we can be free to enjoy every good thing in this world as you intended us for, to enjoy. Thank you for our time together. We praise you for Jesus.
who makes all these things possible. It's in his name we pray.